But uh, if you've had a long night, you're just kind of like trying, you know, fighting to keep the eyes open a little bit. Uh, I'm going to kind of just spill the beans and give you the whole sermon here in a matter of a few statements, and then you can check out if you want. Uh, I, would, I hope, hope you wouldn't, but I guess you can if you want to. But uh, we're, we're starting a new series called You Were Made for This. And for the next five weeks, we're talking about uh, why did God make us? What is our purpose in life? And today, we're going to be talking about you were made for the glory of God. You were made to give God glory. And we're going to be unpacking that here through our time together. We'll be in 1 Corinthians a little bit, as well as in Isaiah 43. And 1 Corinthians, we're looking at a passage about whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. And as Betsy was talking about what we're doing next weekend with the plannings and all that, it just really struck me that that's just one way, one picture of how everything we can do, we can find a way, how do we do this in a way that makes much of the name of Jesus that, that, that shares him with others. We, we look for how can we connect with other, other people and make much of the name of Jesus. And so just uh, want to kind of give that intro there that we're just excited about uh, this opportunity and, and as well as other ones of how can we do all things for the glory of God. Well, often when we see someone at the prime of their human accomplishment, we say or think things like, well, they were just made to do that. I mean, they found their niche. They found where, where they connect in with this world around them. They found that one purpose in life. One example of this, uh, if you're familiar with the Olympic swimmer, Michael Phelps, um, the man is made to swim. It's one thing to say, oh, he, I don't want to take away from the hard work and the dedication he put in, uh, to sa- all the things he sacrificed to be able to get to where he got. Uh, but in addition to that, he was quite literally made to swim. Your average person, when you put your arms out tip to tip, is roughly about your height. So from fingertip to fingertip is how tall you are. Uh, Michael Phelps, his arms are so long, it's about three inches longer this way than he is tall. And he's already a rather tall gentleman. And, and uh, so you can see how that would help him move more water and move himself forward. Uh, height-wise, his torso from the waist up uh, Perspective-wise, from an average man, uh, you would expect him to be someone about six foot eight. But from the waist down, his the length of his legs is about the, someone that's under six foot, and so he's not proportionate. He has a lot more uh, to his torso. And again, I'm not sure about the mechanics on all this, but it does play itself out to where he can get more power and more energy. The man's double jointed: elbows, uh, ankles. Uh, knees, he's able to hyperextend these joints. If you think of how a dolphin moves with his tail and that, that fluid motion, he can recreate that better than others can with the size 14 feet and, and again, propel himself forward at, at a greater capacity. If you've ever been a runner or been to sports, uh, you, you know there comes a point where you begin to hit your wall. And one of the things uh, that causes that is as you, you work more and more, your, your body builds up lactic acid, and it has to break that down. It has to, to deal with that. And, and that's why most people get, get cramps, or you have to stop and kind of rest, or you need to refuel. But he's been tested, and the man only puts out about half as much lactic acid as you or I, which means he can bounce back faster. That's one of the ways he's able to kind of pop out uh, all the different goals, battle you know, race after race after race, is because he, he can, his body processes lactic acid uh, a lot better or just doesn't produce as much. So you could say that Michael Phelps was made to swim. We look at other people, whether it be in sports or going to the, the, the worlds of music or the arts, uh, you know, kind of the, the celebrities or the stars of their fields, and we say, man, they, they were just made to do that. You ever seen someone just sit down uh, at a piano, and it's like they're, they're, they're speaking a whole other language that they know fluently. Uh, we, we, you see we have the, the two pianos up here. 
It reminded me of, there's a restaurant, I think it's called Howl at the Moon, and they have dueling pianos, and uh, you, you just get these music phenoms that sit down, and you can just name a song, and they can play it, they can play it in any key, and they can sing it, they know all the lyrics, and it's just, man, you get people just at the top of their game. And so we may say things like, man, they were made for that. They found their niche, they found their one purpose. But what's interesting is I bet if we were to have conversations with, with a lot of these people at, at the pinnacle of their career, at the pinnacle of uh, whatever their niche is, I think many of them would say, no, this, this isn't my purpose in life. I'm more than this. I'm more than being able to swim very well. I'm, I'm more than being able to uh, throw a football or catch a football better than most. I'm, I'm more than being able to play this instrument or to sing or, or to create art uh, in these different ways or whatever that niche is. I think most would say, no, I at least would hope that. Would at least hope that, hey, I'm more than that. Because honestly, while you may be able to set some records and, and do some amazing things, uh, there come a point where these bodies begin to slow down, right? Where our abilities begin to lessen. We can no longer do what we used to be able to do. We, we hit that point in our life. And all of a sudden, if that was our purpose, man, there's a lot of pressure, isn't there? If truly our purpose in life is what we can do, I don't know about you, but I would be feeling this pressure of, I got to find that right thing before that window expires. Because if, if, my, if my purpose in life is to be you know, an athlete, I know my body's not always going to be there. If, if I know my purpose in life is, is to be a musician, I, I need to, to hone my skill and learn and grow, whatever that would be. If it's in the things we do, man, there's a lot of pressure in that. Uh, you see this, I think, first and foremost with, with high school students and college students. If you're in that stage of life, you can probably relate to this where you're thinking, well, what do I want to do next? On one hand, it's an exciting time, right? That the world is before you. You can go to further education. You can go into military or service. In that sense, you can go in the job field. You can go you know, around the world and travel. Uh, you go do some missionary work, or other, whether it be locally or globally. All these options. But in the same regard, it's like, well, which one am I supposed to do? And we ask ourselves questions like that. Which one am I supposed to do? Which one fits in with my purpose? It, I've kind of seen a similar question like this when people are, are looking to get married. They're, they're trying to find that one person that God has for them. And quite honestly, you can, you can feel free to disagree with me on this. I, I don't believe that God has one person for us. And I, I've played this out in my head because what if I choose wrong? Have I just now set this chain reaction off where everyone's going to end up with the wrong person because I married someone else's wife and now he's, you know, where does it end? I mean, it just, it doesn't play out logically. I think the right person for me to marry is the one that I said, I will marry you. I will be in this relationship before the eyes of God and before others and I commit myself to you. And every day I wake up, I commit myself to you because you are my bride. And so I don't think there's just this one person until I make that decision. And so in the same sense of our purpose, I don't think there's just one purpose as far as the things that we do that God has for us. It's just too much pressure. If you're living in that mindset, man, I got good news for you. Our purpose is greater than the things that we can do. Purpose is not found in our performance, but our performance is birthed out of our purpose. Our purpose is not found in the things that we do, but the things that we do come out of our purpose in life. This is also great news. If you have failed at anything, if you have fallen short, or if you have foregone a responsibility in your life and just let it pass you by, this is great news to know that, hey, it's more than just the things we do. Because again, if it is just the things we do, we look at the things like failures and falling short and, and whatnot, and all of a sudden, man, 
does that mean that you know, we, we get this existential crisis? Well, if I was supposed to you know, accomplish this and, and, and I failed, well, who am I then? If I'm falling short, if I used to be you know, the, the head of my class or the star of my team or you know, I, I was the one at work that everyone went to for these issues and all of a sudden you know, either I failed or there's someone you know, smarter, better, brighter, newer, whatever it is, wh- what does that make me? Because all of a sudden our, our purpose seems purposeless if that's what we're trusting in, our performance. We begin to question our identity. In high school, I was a trombone player, and it just is something that just came naturally to me. I wasn't the best out there in the world, it wasn't, you know, but just in that little pocket of students for the five trombone players we had, I always got the first chair. So I was a lead trombone player. It got to a point where I got complacent in that, and all of a sudden, you know, I think I was a junior, and this, this freshman comes up, and, and he's, he's pretty slick, and he, he, he knows what he's doing, playing his trombone, and he gets first chair. We have to keep fighting for that same spot, and he beats me out. And that kind of lit a fire into my butt, and I, I eventually got it back. Um, but imagine if I had found my identity in that. As a high school student, say, hey, what do you do? I'm a trombone player. And, and you know what? Well, all of a sudden, I'm knocked down a notch because someone better has come in. If I would have found my purpose and my identity in that, man, that, that, that just would have rocked me. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure I had really any sense of what my identity and purpose was uh, in high school, but you know, I was examining different things, exploring different things, and, and trying to see what, what, did, uh, what was God's purpose in my life. Well, as I said, we're starting this new series called You Were Made for This. It's about five weeks long. Uh, we'll be looking at different purposes that God has in our life. Today, we're looking at the fact that we are made to glorify God as we ask this question, why are we here? What, what is the purpose in life? Why did God make humans? And then next week, I invite you back. We're going to be digging into, we are made to be stewards of all that God has created and seeing how we can make much of the name of Jesus and the way that we steward things in our lives. If you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. It's going to be the Old Testament. Uh, it's pretty much, you can open up the middle of your Bible, and you'll find it there. Uh, Isaiah 43. It's a prophet Isaiah. He's speaking to the nation of Israel specifically. And it's something that I think we need to be cautious of. Is sometimes we open up our Bibles and we'll read a passage, and we don't stop to ask, who's speaking and who are they speaking to? Because if we don't ask those questions, we may miss some significant things. There are some parts of Scripture where (coughs) it's simply sharing a story of what happened. It's not saying this is how we should go and live. It's not saying this is what the heart of God looks like. It's saying this is what happened. And if we don't look back and say, okay, well, who's speaking and what's going on here? We miss some of that. We may try to align ourselves with something we were never meant to follow. So it's important to step back and say, okay, well, what's going on? And who's talking? Because maybe it is something more universal. Maybe it is something that's revealing the heart of God. And so as we look at this passage in Isaiah 43, we see this is the prophet Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel specifically. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. If you're familiar with the history of Israel, we know that you had Abraham, who God made a promise to, saying that I will bless your family, I will make a great nation out of your family, amongst other promises. Then Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and then Jacob, God changed his name to Israel, and then that's where the, the, you get the, the story of all the, the sons of Israel 
Joseph, an amazing technical dream coach from Earth, that musical, that's kind of off of that storyline. And uh, then it just bursts out into this massive nation. And so the fact that God says, uh, O Jacob, then also O Israel, uh, why, why both of those? Well, in one sense, O Jacob is, is that really personal, individual title to one of the patriarchs of Israel. In, in essence, I think God's trying to remind them as he speaks to the nation through, through the prophet Isaiah, he wants the na- nation to know, I created you individually. Yes, you go by Israel, but even your forefather Jacob, Oh, Jacob, I formed you. I created you. And so it's this individual reminder, but it's also this corporate connection. It says, oh, Israel. So it's not just individual, but you're part of something greater. You're part of the family of God. And so we see that God has made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has created and formed both individually and this nation and, and, and corporately. Let's continue on verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. As we unpack this a little bit, uh, we can highlight a few things, we begin to see that God is trying to remind his people of a few things. He's reminding them of his relationship between them. Uh, basically, this, that he is God and they are his people. For I am the Lord your God, verse 3 there. Don't forget that I am your God. There's no other God but me. I am the one true God and you are my people. Reminder of, of what he's done, this fact that, hey, I've given you Egypt as your ransom. I've rescued you from Egypt. There's also a prophetic sense in which there's a Savior that will come. And from where we stand in history, we know that's Jesus. And so he's both saying, hey, I've saved you in the past, and hey, there's a Savior that's coming as well. It's a reminder of what he's done. And there's a reminder of what he thinks of his people. I love this. He says, you're precious to me. Precious and loved. And so while this is, at this point, written to Israel, it's revealing the heart of God. That he sees his people as precious and loved. That he is faithful. That he is their God. Let's keep reading here. Verse 5. Fear not. We're going to see a shift in here. I think that expands this beyond just the people of Israel. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so this chunk is ending with this call to bring back God's people. And he kind of goes beyond just those who will be hearing this for the first time, but say the offspring, your, your offspring, your, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, I'm going to call them back to myself. I already have a plan uh, as you play out throughout the generations. And so you can still say, well, Steve, he's probably still talking just to Israel itself. But then we get this one little line here in, into verse 7. I'm sorry, after verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, Everyone who is called by my name. And when we see that, when we put that in the context of, of Scripture as a whole, we begin to see that while this is a message that, that, that first speaks to Israel, it reveals the heart of our Father in heaven, and it begins to apply to us as he includes the offspring of Israel, but then all who call on his name. And so if we were to ask, hey, is this for us? There's a portion of it that is. 
Yes, it reveals who God is, and he gets this line, whom I created for my glory. Basically, God's saying, my people, both Israel and those who call my name by, through Jesus, my people and those who call my name, I created them for my glory. For my glory. Whom I created for my glory. I mean, it just, it, it, it's so simple we can almost miss it. But just pause for a minute. We were created for the glory of God. We were created to glorify him, to give him honor and praise, to give him all glory, to give him all honor, to acknowledge how amazing and beautiful he is. We get this reminder of his presence. He says, fear not, for I am with you. And he expands his focus. He's talked about to the offspring of Israel, but also to us. In Romans 11, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about engrafted branches. See, one of the things you had going on uh, when Jesus, after he had uh, gone, to the gra- gone to the cross, died, was buried on the third day, rose again, and ascended to heaven. And uh, for eyewitnesses, people who saw this all firsthand, who saw the risen Jesus firsthand, were going to other people and telling them all about Jesus. And one of the things you had is people were, were trusting in, in that, and they were saying, yes, we believe Jesus is God, and that he rose from the grave. We believe your, your, your testimony. And, and the church was growing, and people were giving their lives over to Jesus. They are becoming disciples of Jesus. And you had this, all of a sudden, this new day. Some of those people were Jews who were living a Jewish lifestyle that now all of a sudden were followers of Jesus trying to figure out what does that look like now. Others were Gentiles. This basically means not Jewish. And they weren't living a Jewish lifestyle and they trusted in Jesus. And and, and in Romans 11, Paul talks about those being engrafted branches. I've never done this. Uh, I've always wanted to try because it just fascinates me. But uh, you can actually uh, cut a notch out of a, a stem of a plant uh, they actually have tools that, yeah, that for like you know, gardeners and the different like tomato varieties or whatnot that you could very cleanly cut off a branch or cut a little opening, take another branch from another plant and stick it in there and it'll grow. I mean, it's probably a little fancier, a little, little you know, other things you have to do, a little more than just sticking sticks on things. If you ever come to my house and wonder why there's duct tape around the trees with sticks sticking out of them, I'm trying to engraft branches. Um, but what he's talking about is, is here you have this this tree, this plant that's representing the people of God, Israel, specifically God's nation. But he's saying when we trust in Jesus, it's like being an engrafted branch. You didn't start in that family, but God's saying you have a place in my family by the blood of Jesus. And so you have a place in this. And so we can trust that, yes, this passage here, this statement that says, you are created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's speaking to us. That's speaking to us today. We are made to glorify God. So while we we may not be Jewish, maybe you are, in Jesus we become part of the family of God. We're formed and created by him. He is our God. We are his children. He is our Savior. We are precious and loved in his sight. He is with us. We see that we are created for the glory of God. You also see this imagery created, formed, made. And I don't know about you, but when I see these different words, it takes me back to, okay, when God first made us. And we've been talking a little bit over the past couple of months as we went through some of our series about creation and, and science and faith. And I just want to reiterate, as we look at the pages of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, I think so many times we try to read it purely as a scientific textbook, and that's not what it was ever written to be. 
There's a greater depth. There's more involved there. One example of that is we can find passages of Scripture talk about the four corners of the earth. And no one in that time believed that there were four corners of the earth, but there's this figurative language about that, talking about the ends of the earth, basically anywhere you go. And so we need to understand that, but we see the key to God's creation story is God. That God was the one who created. However he did it, whatever that looked like, God was the one who created, but we look back to that and we see more light being shed on our purpose. We see that we were not only made to glorify God, but we are made in the image of God. We are made uh, as a reflection of God. If you got your phones with you, uh, I want you to take them out for me. Uh, if you don't have a, a camera on your phone, you can leave it in your pocket. Um, if you got a mirror or a compact, um, seriously, grab your phone. I'm doing it too. Get your camera out. Turn it on. Open it up. And, and then you do one of those like shocking moments where you, you turn the camera so it faces inward and then all of a sudden you see your massive face looking back at you. That scares me sometimes when I forget I had it facing at myself. Pull your camera out. And if you don't, if you don't have one, if you don't have a camera in front of you, uh, borrow your neighbors and like kind of sit next to them. You can both get in the shot. Um, or if no one in your row has one, you can just find someone who has a lot and borrow their phone, which I know is asking a lot to give up your phone. But um, try to find a way where you can see yourself. We're not doing selfies. We're not sending, you know, don't worry about that. But why don't you just look at yourself? What, what do you see? Hypothetical question. I'm not, I'm not looking for answers. Like I, you can see a response going either way. I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. I like what, what I see. That's, that's, that's one of the differences between a man and a woman. A beautiful woman looks at it and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't like that. I don't like this. A guy who's like, you know, hideous looks at himself. I am fine. You know, whatever. <laughs> I've said it before. I've got to stick to my notes more often. <laughs> so I want you to look at yourself, and what do you see? You see a reflection of yourself. Something that we like to do uh, at our house is, is, you know, it's not always a bedtime routine, but every once in a while, you know, we're, we're snuggling with the kids, and, and me or Sarah, one of us pulls out our phone, and we start flipping through old pictures. And it's kind of like the, the digital photo album. We're just looking at different memories and whatnot, and sure enough, every time, one of the things that my kids say is, that's me. That's me. It's usually like they see themselves as a baby or as little. It's like, that's me. And we can look at ourselves and say, that's me. That's me. Well, we, we know that we're not really saying that's me. There's not someone in my phone who looks just like me looking back at me. We know it's a reflection. What we're saying is this is but a reflection of me. I'm up, you can keep yours out if you want. I'm going to put this down just because it's hard to preach and, and have a selfie looking back at myself. I feel like I'm being watched. <laughs> but... Uh, Let's see, that, that, that's me. We know that that's a reflection. And the question we can ask is, is it a good reflection? Well, when you get that camera, a little, a little trick here. If you're holding the camera down and it's looking up, it's usually not a good reflection. You want to come down, it's a better angle, kind of cuts off the extra chin there. Um, but is that a good reflection of yourself when you, when you look at yourself? You know, maybe you look back through old pictures, and I can see some, even before camera phones were all that common, they actually printed out uh, pictures. And some I see, and I'm like, yeah, that. There's something in this picture that is a good picture of who I'm striving to be. Maybe there's other pictures where it's like, oh, we can throw that one away. That's not really a good picture, whether it's something on the surface or something deeper. Maybe it's pictures of, of old times or old decisions or old ways that you've lived, and you're like, you know what, that's not me anymore. Maybe you keep those pictures as a testimony to how God has moved in your life, how life change has occurred, 
or as a reminder of, hey, that, that's a place I don't want to go back to. But we can see these different images that are just a reflection. But the question we can ask ourselves, if, if we're called, uh, if our purpose is to glorify God and we're created as a reflection, because when God made man, he made him in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are a reflection of God. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. When God busts out his camera and turns it on himself, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say we could be in those pictures. Because we're a reflection of God. We are not God, but we're a reflection of God. And so I think the question we can ask ourselves is, is, am I living as a good reflection of God? When I look in the mirror, do I truly see myself or do I see some other face looking back at me because I've taken soap and I've drawn on the mirror a different face to kind of hide. I don't want to hide that or hide this or whatever. Are we reflecting God? If we're made to glorify God, then what does that look like? What does it look like to glorify God? As we, as we live as a reflection of God, what does it look like to glorify God? Before we jump to that question, I want you to think about the moon. Does the moon create any light whatsoever? No, it doesn't. It merely reflects the sun. And so think of it in the same way. We can cast light into this dark world, not because we produce any light in and of ourselves, but because we're a reflection of the Father, made possible through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it all begins with Jesus. If we're made to glorify God, it begins with Jesus. What does that look like to glorify God? We see that Jesus is the exact representation of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, says, uh, I am the radiance of the Son. The Son is a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so Jesus is that exact imprint, exact reflection, because he is God. He can be that. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians, we see that, that uh, the glory of God is in the face of Jesus. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to Jesus as the Lord of glory. He's talking about how none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And in John 17, we see that Jesus reflected and glorified the Father. He sets an example for us. Not only is he the glory of God, but he reflects God. Uh, John 17, 4, I, for unto Jesus, glorified you on earth, speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so as Jesus glorified the Father, the what he did poured out of that and accomplish the work you gave me to do. So to glorify God, one must first be fully surrendered to Jesus. And for some of us, this is where we need to pause and say, have I fully surrendered my life to Jesus? Maybe you haven't, and you want nothing to do with God, you want nothing to do with Jesus, because you have baggage, you have questions, and you have, uh, and those are all valid. My pushback to you is, I've rarely met, I don't know if I've met someone yet who had every question answered, who had every uh, past thing dealt with prior to coming to Jesus. And part of that is because I don't think we have the capacity to fully unpack that. There are still questions I have today that I, I ask God, and I, I want to seek answers to, and sometimes answers are to be found. Other times I, I'm left with, the, I, I think it's this, but I'm, I'm, I'm walking with you, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. Because honestly, it comes down to who do you believe Jesus to be? Do you believe that Jesus was and is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross, gave up his life, 
was dead, was buried, and the third day rose again and appeared to many. As I look at the facts of that story, as I look at the eyewitness testimonies, as I look at what they were willing to go through and to because of the truth of Jesus, as I look at the lives of the disciples, as you unpack the history around it, it shows itself to be true. And so while you may still have other questions, yeah, I think in this day and age, one, one of the big questions that comes up is struggling with the Old Testament, right? If you spend any time in the Old Testament, you're like, man, there's some questions I got. We get to some different passages. I'm not sure what this means. I'm not sure how to make sense. Or if it means what I think it means, man, what does that say about who God is? And we struggle with some of these passages. But honestly, for me, I, I come to the who Jesus is, and I see how he uh, quotes the Old Testament. I see how he doesn't uh, set it aside, but he fulfills it. And all of a sudden, I can say, well, I may not understand it all, I know Jesus does, and he supports it, and I'm with him. And so it may not answer all those questions, but at least it moves me to a place where, like, well, hang on, like, I, I believe Jesus to be true, and, and, and he uses the Old Testament, and so I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. I, I fully surrender my life to Jesus because of, of who he has shown himself to be. I think to glorify God, we begin there. To glorify God, we begin with a, a life that is fully centered on Jesus. And that's a growing process. It really is. I think when we make that decision to follow Jesus with our lives and say, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Man, when we make that decision, we are a child of God. We are forgiven. We are pure. We are spotless. Scripture teaches that that, that, uh, our our, our, uh, unrighteousness is, is paid for at the cross. And we take on the very righteousness of Jesus. And so when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and our relationship with the Father is restored because of that. And I know we do still live in this life and there's still uh, mistakes that we make and ways we go against the will of God that we need to repent of and, and turn back to him. And there's this ongoing process of growth and development and, and questions being answered and learning more about who God is. But from the second we trust in him, we are a child of God. Our, our eternity is sealed. And we make much of his name. We are glorifying God and we surrender our life to him. But that's not just a one-time event because honestly, everything in life is an opportunity to glorify God. We can say the converse of this as well. Everything in life is an opportunity not to glorify God. As I said, one of the challenges of the early church was this mix of the Jews and the Gentiles who were following Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're trying to figure out what does it look like to move forward because the Jews were living Jewish lifestyles, doing, doing Jewish things, uh, having Jewish diets and dietary laws and, and, and doing Jewish practices. And imagine being a Gentile as an adult male being told by a Jew who says, okay, we're both following Jesus. You need to take up our Jewish practices, which include circumcision. Not too popular anymore. All of a sudden, or, or imagine being a chef and all of a sudden being told, hey, you need to pick up Jewish dietary laws, so take all that bacon off your menu. You could see there was some struggle and, and cause discord. And so the Apostle Paul steps in and he's trying to help coach them through this and say, okay, well, here's what we do. And he gets this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. At first, he's, he's walking through kind of some definers. He says, you need to ask yourself, if I'm going to do something, I need to ask, is it permissible? Is it permissible? Is it something that is sinful? If it's sinful, then no, we shouldn't be doing that. And there was some struggle in here because there were dietary laws that some of the Jews would follow. They would say, yes, this is a law. We shouldn't be breaking this law, but there were some of those that were fulfilled by the cross. 
But we look at other things where it's like, hey, is it sinful to cheat on my spouse? Is it, is it sinful to have a life of dishonesty and to lie to my own advantage? Is it sinful uh, uh, you know, to get drunk every weekend? It, it would say, okay, yes, there's, there's clear scripture on these things. Jesus has spoken very clearly on, on many things, and so is it permissible? And if the answer is no, then it's something that we shouldn't have anything to do with. As you continue to go through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we get to this question of, is it beneficial? Is it beneficial? If whatever I'm setting out to do, uh, if I want to ask, will this glorify God, I could ask, is it, is it permissible? Is it beneficial? Will something good come of it? I, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I loved getting to that point of young adult. Because what happens when you become a young adult? I'm talking about that transition in life where you move out of the house, where you're on your own. Um, again, that, that comes in phases for some and others. It hits you, you know, like you go from fully under your parents' house to fully out on your own. Um, but you get to the stage of life where you get to call the shots, right? You get to make the decisions. You get to choose how you want to spend your time. And if you want to stay up all night long because you want to binge watch on Netflix, hey, you can do it. Who's going to tell you to go to bed? You can do whatever you want. You got responsibilities coming at eight o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock while you're in college. Let's be honest, twelve o'clock noon. Um, but you got responsibilities coming, right? And so you can make that choice. But is it good? Is it beneficial? You can smack yourself in the head all you want, but is it good? No, you know. And so you have to ask yourself: Is it permissible? Is it beneficial? Is it wise? What is gained or what is lost? You know, one of the common practices, there was a time where I used to work as a surveyor, and every time someone would, would be transitioning, maybe they're stepping down, going to a new a location or a new job, <coughs> or just leaving the company, um, wasn't often, but one, the, the common practice was to take them out to eat. And, and we wanted to celebrate them and just you know, let them know, hey, we love them and whatnot, and so I can get on board with that. I can get on board with the, hey, we want to honor you, we want to thank you for being a part of our team, and I would, I would, I would try to express that in any way that I could. But then kind of the end of all that would always be they'd always go to Hooters. Hooters is the one place that they would always go. And they said it had great wings, and that's the only reason they wanted to go. And they were lying. <laughs> they were lying. And so I had to ask myself, is it wise? Is it wise? Well, on a personal note, to put myself in a place full of scantily clad women, if I'm trying to honor God with my mind, with the thoughts that I'm thinking, and I don't want to be attempted to lust, putting myself in that situation would not be wise. Would not be wise. The other question we're going to ask, is it others-focused? Am I thinking about what my actions are communicating to others? If I'm trying to make much of the name of Jesus by taking these steps or those steps, am I making much of the name of Jesus? And again, I think one of the reasons that, that this is difficult, one of the reasons we hate these kind of conversations, it's not the same answer every time. It's not the same answer every time. For to ask, hey, can I do this? Whatever that is, that thing that you won't want to know. Well, it depends. Let's ask these questions. Is it permissible? Is it beneficial? Is it wise? Is it others focused? And, and Paul gets this, this, this pinnacle here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Sums it all up this way. So whatever you, or whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Basically, live where you're not trying to offend someone, but do everything you do to the glory of God. And so if you were to go up to a Jew with a piece of bacon, this is good, you know, start chomping on that thing, you're probably offending your fellow brother in Christ who's a Jewish, who's Jewish. 
And so would that be permissible in that moment? I, I would say, you know, it's permissible. It's not wise. It's not others-focused. And so I would say hold off on the BLTs there. But then you're somewhere else, and no one else, go for it. Dig in. Give me no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that, that they may be saved. You see Paul's heart right there. His heart is to make much of the name of Jesus so that other people can hear about him. And so if we center our lives on Jesus, fully surrendering to him, then asking this question, what can I do to make much of the name of Jesus? Because every opportunity is an opportunity to live for the glory of God. I wasn't sure if I was going to share this story. It's nothing groundbreaking. It was just um, kind of just a little profound moment. Um, we had, had company over last night. We have, we have, we're having a birthday party for my son with family and friends, and, and, and uh, he's turning three today, or yesterday, and so we're having the party today, and um, we're just getting the house ready. You know, you have one of those, you know, last-ditch efforts where it's like, this is how, why you have junk drawers and junk closets and junk rooms, because it's like, just, just shove everything in there, shut the door, no one goes in there. And the house looks spotless, and it's awesome, but everything, you know, you, know you have this, like, time bomb that you have to deal with later. And um, there's some things that my wife had asked me to do and asked me to take care of. And I'm like, yeah, I can take care of that for you. And um, one of the things was we have this compost bin. And it was overflowing from, uh, from just the winter and whatnot and I had to deal with it. And you dump all the stuff out of it, you know, to kind of clean it all up. And then it has this tray underneath it that uh, collects all the juice and stuff that kind of soaks down through. And you can just dump it if you want, but, I mean, that, that's great fertilizer. And so you're supposed to put it in a bucket and then spread it out in your garden. And so I, I get to this point where... I'm out in our garden, which right now is just, you know, all clear, obviously. Uh, i got a five-gallon bucket full of juice, we'll call it. It doesn't smell very good at all. I mean, this is a, a whole year of compost that's just been leaking down into this thing that just got dumped into this five-gallon bucket. And I'm like, part of me just wants to dump it and be done with it. But I know that, one, that this, this, this can be good for our garden. But two, I can also honor my wife. I know she would like this spread out throughout the garden. And, and so... I get to this point where I'm in the garden, I got this little shovel, I'm, I'm just kind of like flinging dirty, well, it's, it's nutrient-filled, stinky juice water, and I'm just flinging it all throughout the garden. And, and for a moment, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm having a bad mood, I'm having a bad attitude about the right decision. The right decision was to honor my wife. It was like, yeah, I'll take care of that for you, don't worry about it, I got it covered. And I, and I made that choice, and I think that gave glory to God. But then the way in which I was doing it in my own heart, even if no one else saw the way I was doing it in my own heart, I was being a butthead. I, I was having a bad attitude. And in that moment, I just had this, this, this question from God saying, Steve, can you fling dirty juice water into your garden in a way that gives me glory? <laughs> it sounds silly, doesn't it? But it reminded me where I was going with the sermon today that everything we do is an opportunity to make much of the name of Jesus. And I'm not saying that you can't ever have a bad attitude, but I'm saying use that bad attitude as an opportunity to make much of the name of Jesus by repenting of it and saying, I'm being a butthead. And God, give me a new heart. Give me a new attitude. Help me to find joy in doing this because I can do it in a way that honors you. I can do it in a way that makes much of you. And if we can fight for that in the small little ways of our daily lives, how much more can we walk those roads in ways that are seen by others? How much more can we make much of the name of Jesus in ways that will be seen by our neighbors, by our family members, by, by you know, anyone who we come in contact with? And so in closing, as we strive to know what is our purpose in life, 
We're going to be talking about other different ways in which this is lived out in the coming weeks. But over all this series, if you were to ask, what is my purpose in life? You were made, you were created for the glory of God. You were made for the glory of God. Not for ourselves, not for anyone else. You were made, your purpose in life is to bring God glory. And so everything we do, let's surrender our lives to that truth. Let's live in our marriages. Let's live with our children. Let's live with our parents. Let's live with our family members. Let's live in our community. Let's work at our jobs. Let's work in our homes. Let's work in, in, let's, let's serve and volunteer and all these different things. Let's give and support others and care for others and serve others and live sacrificially. Let's do all these things in a way that makes much the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. I thank you so much for just this clarity that you've given us in purpose. That we don't have to go through life wondering, man, what am I supposed to do with my life? But we just know that you give us this overarching truth that we are made to give you glory, Father. Father, I pray that that's freeing for many here today. For anyone that has decisions ahead of them or maybe they feel like they're in a place in life right now where where, they, they don't feel like they're living in a, in a purpose or with purpose. Father, I pray that this truth would be very freeing for them. That they know that even right now in this moment, they can be on mission by living on purpose for your glory. And Father, as we live our days, as we go out into our communities, as we go out into our homes and our neighborhoods, Father, help us to see the different ways in which we can glorify you. Whether it be taking a stand for honesty and being unwilling uh, to, to lie and be deceptive. Maybe there's some apologies we need to make in our, our relationships. Maybe there's some attitude adjustments we need to make, whether anyone sees it or knows it or not. Humble us, Father. Humble us and sur- uh, help us to surrender fully to you. So we desire to see much made in the name of Jesus. We give you all glory, Father God. Anything that, that, any life change that's happened in our lives, Father, is, is because of you. And we give you the honor and glory for that. We lift you up on high because you are worthy. Praise all in your name. Oh, God's people said, amen.